0: The Kaderna
1: Podcast. The,
0: Kaderna Podcast. the Kaderna Podcast. Hi there everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and I'm happy to have you joining us. So on today's episode, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about a topic you're sick and tired of, and that is the coronavirus. But we're going to look at it from a totally different angle, because again, this is a finance and economic show talking about you, your personal finances, and your business, and how to put them in a better position. So I know that right now there's a lot of fear out there, there's a lot of uncertainty. So what I always like to do, both as a history buff, but also I think as a, a best practice, is look back at you know what can the past tell us? How have we, as a country, as a government, how have we handled issues as they've arisen uh, over time, of varying degrees? So what I wanna look at very closely is some of the biggest pandemics some of the biggest obstacles and issues that our country has faced, particularly from a health standpoint. And then how did our government intervene or step in to try and help us citizens out? And what was the eventual impact, uh, particularly the economic impact of that intervention or that reaction Okay, for an attempt at a solution to that ongoing problem at that point in time? So we're going to look at some different items here, uh, ranging from you know the uh, early uh, 20th century all the way up into the modern day and age, and what some of these events were and how they played out over time. So I think it's going to be some interesting information I have to share today, and um, hopefully you can walk away a little bit more informed and thinking you know what the future is going to hold. So why did I want to have this conversation on a topic you're sick of? Um, just like we all are. Well, it really came to, to a head on Sunday afternoon here in uh, the Jersey Shore, it was a pretty nice day. So I went on a very long bike ride uh, with my boys and also a couple of friends that tagged along with us. And we all kept six feet apart, did everything we were supposed to. But about halfway through our ride, you know, going towards the beach, we were like, geez, it, it seems like it's uh, July here at the Jersey Shore. The traffic was flowing, You know, there were cars everywhere. Everybody was biking past one another, there were joggers. Um, It it was packed as far as everybody just being out to try and escape the quarantine and have a good time. And then we got near the boardwalk and the boardwalk was slammed with people walking back and forth. And this this poor cop had to keep going and telling everybody, you can stand there, but you can't go there and make sure you spread out and pretty much doing that all day long. So we got to thinking, we were like, whatever happened to the quarantine, you know, we're in the peak of it right now. And it seems like business as usual. And so I told one of my buddies later that day, uh, one of my best friends who happens to be a police officer. I was like, you know, we drove by the, uh, or rode by the pizzeria near us and it was slammed, you know, patrons were coming and going, uh, you know, as busy as ever, you know, certainly within that six feet uh, space of each other. And he said, you know what, they ought to be shut down. And I said, well, you gotta look at it from you know the their side of the coin, if you will. You know, they're they're hustling to keep their business afloat, to try and pay their rent, to try and keep their customers happy, to, you know, at the end of the day, bring money home and put food on the table for their families. And he said, I don't care, that's not my problem. They ought to be shut down, they're breaking the rule. And I thought, you know, that's maybe easy for you to say when you have an uninterrupted paycheck you know, very nice benefits. And you just actually got a free $1,200 check a couple days prior. So I think you're going to see a lot more of these debates arise, as I'm sure you notice already on the news or even through social media on what should we do, what shouldn't we do with this whole shutdown and quarantine. Again, I don't want to put fuel on the fire, um, but I want to introduce the economic impact so that we can look at it from a healthy and wealthy standpoint, as we always do on this show. So how are we going to do that? Without further ado, what I wanna introduce is some research I did for a recent article, um, which you could certainly look up as well, on the economics of a pandemic. And the way that we're gonna diagnose each of these situations over history is through three metrics. The first one is gonna be classified as severity. So the infected population, how severe is the symptoms or are the symptoms? Uh, is it a cold that I sneeze for a couple of days and then I feel fine? Or is it something that could, you know, uh, paralyze me or end up leaving me dead by chance? So we have severity. The next thing to consider is going to be magnitude. So how many people are affected by this issue? Is it something that's just, you know, touching a tiny population, you know, in Alaska that 50 people have? Or is it ravaging the entire country or, or the globe? Um, so we have magnitude. And then the third one would be the speed of contraction of going from identifying the issue to the infected feeling those severe consequences if there are any. So is it something that, you know, will take years or decades to develop and impact my health? Or is it something instantaneous where I'm here today, gone tomorrow? So those are the three lenses we're going to use to each one of these situations. And there are situations I've identified as some of the most notable, both from a government standpoint intervening, but then also from a uh, opinion standpoint from the general population uh, in which there's been plenty of news and headlines surrounding that issue, okay? So when we look at coronavirus, what we're dealing with right now, just to bring us up to speed, this is data as of April 20th, 2020, and we're gonna just focus on America here because that's where we have the most accurate information. So right now there are about 814,000 identified cases. And unfortunately they've resulted in about 44,000 deaths in the USA uh, due directly to COVID-19. So when we'd say, okay, let's look through those three lenses real quick. From a severity standpoint, quite unclear, okay? You can say that, you know, we have people that don't even know that they have coronavirus that are completely symptom-free. And then you have other people that unfortunately contract it and they end up passing away, uh, as I just alluded to. So that severity is quite an unknown because as more testing goes on, uh, we don't really know what that death rate is. Uh, It's a, it's a bit of a moving target right now. So that's, that's severity. When we look at magnitude, the magnitude I'd classify as quite high, as we can tell, it's very contagious. Now I just said 814,000 cases. And the magnitude also, though it's high, it's also a bit unknown. As you could just see by a study that was done or a test just last week by Mass General, a very renowned hospital, they tested 200 random citizens in Boston. And a third of them, 64, tested positive for COVID-19, not even having any clue that they had the virus. So the magnitude is almost inconceivable right now because so many people don't know if they have it which of course then trickles down to well, how severe is it if people are walking around healthy as could be with it in theory. And then as far as speed, that seems to be quite fast Uh, from what we can tell people who contract it and are prone to the virus and and kind of the worst uh, cases. Unfortunately, they're having complications very quickly, uh, sometimes passing away within a couple of weeks or so. So I would classify that speed of onset is quite high. So that's how we can kind of define coronavirus from very elementary three lenses uh, that the average Joe can kind of diagnose it with. All right. And again, the point being, all this is evolving because we don't have that much data over just about a month and a half uh, here in the States. So now let's switch gears and start to go from the present back into the past and look at what are some of the most major and notable issues that we've had to deal with in our country, both as people and as a government. The first one from probably the most notable health impact we'll touch on is cigarette smoking. So what is the problem? It's going to be cancer and other health-related issues. Let's look at our three ones. lenses. From a severity standpoint, very high. Okay, Most people who smoke end up dealing with uh, significant health problems. The data shows that. From a magnitude extremely high, people smoke all around the country every day from a speed of developing issues very slow. If I smoke a cigarette today, I'm not going to die tomorrow. It could te- take decades uh, for some of these problems to evolve or come about. According to the Center for Disease Control, Centers for Disease Control, smoking is responsible for over 480,000 deaths in America every year. Of those, 41,000 deaths result from secondhand smoke exposure. Right. So people that don't even smoke, but they're just in the presence of it. We see about 41,000 deaths a year, Okay, right next to where we are with currently coronavirus in America. Uh, this accounts for nearly one in five deaths every year. Okay, So obviously this is front and center, one of the biggest causes. The government reaction, I would rate that as moderate. Okay, It's not illegal as long as you're of age and based on state by state they can restrict or limit where you'll be able to smoke cigarettes. 28 states have imposed comprehensive smoke-free laws, uh, but none ban smoking in the workplace. And uh, those really speak to, um, to bars and restaurants, the kind of public areas like that. Uh, And the Food and Drug Administration, so looking at a federal level has banned flavored e-cigarettes that were targeted at the youth. Okay, so that's essentially what we've seen so far as far as government intervention. The economic impact of smoking, I'd classify that as very high. Okay, in the liability column, the total economic cost of smoking is an estimated $300 billion per year, including $170 billion of direct medical care to adult smokers. All right, in the asset column, for the government at least, States collected $27.3 billion in tax revenue and uh, smoking-related court settlements last year. Okay, again, data from the CDC. So it's a huge, huge industry, huge part of our economy, uh, but obviously an enormous drag on our economy when we think of uh, what it does to our healthcare system. And that's what we have as far as government intervention. 28 states right now have imposed some sort of restriction, uh, but it's totally legal. Uh, to smoke, of course. The next one, probably second to this uh, in the most talked about column, uh, maybe even more so, would be cars and automobiles. So what is our problem? It's motor vehicle accidents. The severity, it varies. Sometimes you have an accident, person walks right away. Other times um, people are killed on the scene immediately from the accident. The magnitude, extremely high. right. You can't turn on your your radio in the morning on your commute to work without hearing about 15 different accidents that occurred uh, on the highway every single day. Uh, So we're all driving everywhere. These things happen. And the speed is very fast. OK. In that accident, if there's going to be a severe consequence, it usually happens right then and there uh, or within, you know, close uh, time frame to that accident as opposed to smoking, for instance. So some of the numbers between 1913 and 2018, uh, the number of motor vehicle deaths in America increased 838%, all right? It was about 4,200 in 1913, in 2018, just over 39,000. Right? 39,404 to be exact. And that's coming from the National Safety Council. All right, but you're probably saying, well, back then there were only 2 million licensed drivers, whereas today there's 227 million. Okay, so you know when we think about that per capita, it's uh, not, not that bad, it's actually a, a huge improvement due to vehicle safety and some of the things I'll touch on. The death rate, though, peaked in 1937 with 30.8 deaths per 100,000 of the population, whereas today we're at about 12 uh, auto fatalities per 100,000 of population, okay? So, and speeding obviously is a huge factor uh, in a lot of these incidents. So what was the government reaction to this problem that every single year seemed to be growing with more cars on the road? Uh, the intervention, if you will, was very high. Of course, we have federal, state, and local laws uh, that speak to how we can drive, where we can drive, um, regarding seat belts, speeding, and driving while intoxicated, okay? The seat belt actually came about from Volvo. Uh, their, one of their design engineers, Niels Bowen, patented the first three-point safety belt in 1958. Believe it or not, it wasn't until almost three decades later in 1984 that New York became the first state to mandate wearing a seatbelt while in a car. Okay, Uh, Since then, 48 other states have hopped on board and, uh, you know, make us wear a seatbelt. The one bit of trivia here, the one state that still does not have a seatbelt law is uh, New Hampshire. New Hampshire, I don't know what the heck you're doing out there, but look at the data and certainly wear a seatbelt. Um, so, obviously, there's been huge intervention from the government with some of the laws, you know, signs everywhere you go telling you how fast you can drive, and with most tickets occurring from being pulled over uh, on the road. So, obviously, I think that makes sense to most of us. The economic impact is enormous. Okay, US is the second largest market for vehicle sales and production, according to Select USA. And since Honda opened its first U.S. plant in 1982 here in America, every other major foreign automaker has uh, produced and sold vehicles here in America uh, to the tune of an investment over $75 billion. U.S. affiliates of foreign-owned companies actually support over 400,000 American jobs and a $114.6 billion domestic sector of our economy. Okay. And we're not even touching on uh, the impact of just transportation touching every other aspect of business and what it allows us to do going from point A to point B. Okay, By and large, we've seen a lot of that almost come to a halt uh, with the current quarantine. Um, but that's uh, that's what a lot of people point to uh, on the roads. It's extremely dangerous. We hear about auto fatalities every single day, um, but it's just kind of the the nature of doing business and Like I said, getting from point A to point B in the modern world. The third one I wanna touch on that's kind of in this category of, it impacts everybody, everybody thinks about it, is actually swimming. All right, so what is the problem? Drowning. The severity, very high. Okay, folks that drown, obviously, are uh, in very bad shape or passing away. The magnitude is very low, okay? We have a ton of swimmers every year in America, and fortunately, not that many of them drown, very few. Um, But the speed of the onset is extremely fast, okay? Uh, When we we drown, it's it's instant. It's not an issue that pops up years later. Uh, It's instantaneous. So according to the CDC, on average, there's 3,536 fatal drownings annually in the U.S. This is the most heart-wrenching stat, is that drowning accounts for more deaths of children ages 1 to 4 than any other cause besides congenital anom- anomalies okay, or birth defects. So what is the government intervention from hearing, you know, some of those terrible statistics? It's been extremely low, okay? There's not really any uh, oversight other than maybe at the local or municipal level putting up swim at your own risk signs, you know, at the beach, Or when you have a pool installed, uh, just some suggestions for swim courses for the youth, uh, CPR courses, life vests, or safety vests, and a suggested perhaps fence around the pool when there are kids present. Okay, but again, none of that being law. The economic impact, all right, the economy for swimming is enormous. According to the Office for Coastal Management, there's 154,000. Uh, beach-related businesses that employ over 3.3 million people here in America and generate $304 billion of GDP. There's an additional 10.4 million residential pools and over 309,000 public swimming sites in the U.S. Okay, so obviously it's something that uh, has a gigantic uh, economy within itself and something we all love to do to go to the beach, even in the face of some of those terrible statistics, particularly Uh, For toddlers and children. So that's swimming. That's our problem and our intervention. The next one, which is going to be kind of in that that same vicinity as talked about every single year, uh, is alcohol. And this is where we have a very good case study. So what is the problem? Health and crime. The severity, it varies. Some people they, they drink and they have alcohol poisoning and they die that evening. Others could have a beer every day and go on living comfortably. The magnitude is extremely high. Okay. Most Americans, I shouldn't say most, but an enormous amount of Americans uh, do drink some alcohol. And then the speed varies. Uh, Like I said, sometimes it could be something that ends up in a death that evening or that day. And other times it's something like smoking that a repeated use over a lifetime creates a lot of other health issues. So what the CDC tells us is that an estimated 88,000 people die annually from alcohol-related deaths, all right? So that's obviously quite a large problem, and the government uh, reaction to that has been extremely high. The, the highest point we could actually look to is when we had outright prohibition of liquor, all right? So this is when the Volstead Act was passed in 1920 that created a nationwide constitutional ban on the importation, production, transportation, and sale of alcohol. Okay, It was coined the National Experiment by President Hoover. In 1933, the 21st Amendment was passed to repeal Prohibition, and it was the only time in American history that an amendment was passed to repeal another amendment. All right, so that was one of the most severe government interventions of all time in a health crisis. The economic impact was extremely high. Uh, this is um, from some reports through PBS and History Channel. The closing of breweries, distilleries, and saloons triggered thousands of direct job losses and exponentially more indirectly through barrel makers, truckers, waiters, and other industries uh, that became extent, extinct overnight and states previously relied uh, very heavily upon the excise taxes from liquor. In New York, they accounted for almost 75% of its total revenue. It cost the federal government over $11 billion in revenue and over $300 million to enforce prohibition uh, with what originally started as over 1,500 prohibition police uh, that were created a new job just to enforce this law. Again, that's from PBS, that data. By 1930, an estimated 100,000 speakeasies had popped up just in New York City alone, and as many point to it, led to the possible rise of the mob in America uh, through Al Capone and a lot of other folks at the time, and other criminals. A 2015 study estimated that the repeal of prohibition had a net social benefit of $432 million per year from 1934 to 37, right? So it started to bring in a lot more money, uh, benefits that totaled about $3.25 billion um, due to consumer and producer surpluses, tax revenues, and reduced criminal violence costs uh, from this kind of underground world uh, that came about. That data is from the Journal of Contemporary Economic Policy. Okay, so there we saw a problem government stepped in in one of the biggest ways ever. Uh, The economic impact uh, was dramatic. It it changed a lot of industries across the country and gave rise to an entire underground uh, market until it was eventually uh, dissipated by the repealing in 1933. And then to get more into illnesses, if you can bear with us, because now we're kind of coming full circle into very notable issues, into ones that are more relevant from a pandemic standpoint. So the first one that a lot of uh, older Americans have pointed to that they they reminisce of is polio. So the problem was a highly contagious and paralyzing illness. The severity, it varied. Some folks were paralyzed by it. Others were not very affected at all. The magnitude was moderate, okay? So it came about each summer, um, but it did not affect a very large swath of the population. And the speed was also moderate. It's not something that impacted people immediately, um, but it did progress over time uh, if they contracted those uh, illnesses. So from about 1916 to 1954, poliomyelitis plagued, and forgive me if I pronounced that wrong, uh, plagued Americans, particularly children and young adults, every summer. The disease paralyzed about one to 2% of those who were infected, including one of our most famous presidents of all time, FDR. The government reaction to polio would be classified as moderate. This was the introduction of social distancing. It was typically advised to avoid pools in the summer or other social gatherings during an outbreak. There were at the time government imposed household in township-wide quarantines when an outbreak was identified. Eventually in 1954, the Salk vaccine was developed and uh, that pretty much did away with polio in America. Uh, The last case that we even had here in the US was in 1979. Okay, again, that's all uh, thanks to the CDC, that information. So the economic impact uh, from that that illness and then this kind of sporadic government intervention, really varied. Um, It wasn't shown as too severe, but most reports show a localized impact uh, based actually more upon the fear of social gathering than any government mandated uh, restrictions. Okay, so that was polio. Uh, Again, much more localized than we see in today's day and age. The granddaddy of them all, if if you study uh, pandemics, would be identified as the Spanish flu of 1918. And this is what we'll conclude with in our analysis. So the problem was a highly contagious illness, the severity, extremely high. Um, Obviously, it killed a lot of people, which I'm going to talk about. The magnitude, very high. This went around the world. Um, Sounds a bit like coronavirus in a way. And then the speed was fast. A lot of the folks that contracted this uh, were dead in a short period of time, uh, unfortunately. So the Spanish flu killed an estimated 675,000 Americans and over 20 to 50 million people worldwide while infecting over a third of the world's population. All right. Again, that data is uh, thanks to the History Channel, but in most of those numbers we see 20 to 50 million worldwide, uh, just a gigantic um, you know, number and, and impact that this flu had on the world and Americans. As far as the government reaction to it, could be classified as moderate to high, depending on where you were. Uh, Social distancing was introduced based on the state and the city, all right? For instance, Philadelphia held an enormous parade right in the midst of the flu, whereas the health commissioner of St. Louis, Dr. Max Starkloff, uh, immediately flattened the curve and and kind of made that that, uh, term very famous at the time by closing schools and imposing a very strict quarantine that they credited as the result of one eighth the death rate of Philadelphia, who kind of moved on unimpeded. The economic impact was enormous. That's the only way to put it. Uh, There's not even a lot of numbers uh, that people can point to. Uh, One of the things that is noted uh, through all studies is that employee wages increased dramatically after this time because the work supply was lowered by such a dramatic drop in overall population which is just hard to even fathom. So the flu eventually uh, disappeared before it was ever contained, uh, just due to an an immunity um, that people developed and uh, unfortunately wiped out pretty much everyone else that didn't develop that immunity. So the point that I'm trying to make here, I know we're restating what seems like the obvious and that there's two sides to the coin. There's health and there's wealth. There's gonna be risk and reward. So no one knows the exact severity, the exact uh, level of contagion associated with COVID-19. That's kind of a moving target right now. But one thing I can say is we don't know if opening the doors to our economy or continuing to keep them closed is going to have a a big impact on the spread of coronavirus and our death rate. We don't have that, that totally defined yet. But one thing we can almost guarantee is that a prolonged shutdown of the nation's greatest or excuse me, the world's greatest economy is almost guaranteeing an eventual recession or even depression. If we can just look recently, you know, in in 2020, just year to date, oil prices have dropped over 90 percent. All right. There's more oil than people know what to do with right now. And there's almost no transportation going on. This could trigger uh, gigantic credit defaults as that that, uh, sector kind of impedes upon every other industry. All right. So there's a lot of other things that are going on with international travel bans and quarantines that are going to reach farther and farther into the economy. And then financial experts right now are already wondering the $2.2 trillion essentially bridge loan that was just introduced through the CARES Act. Is that enough to get us over the hump? Did that kind of buy us about a month of, okay, we'll shut down the economy, we'll put this band-aid on it, and hopefully then those businesses can come about thanks to that little crutch that they got. If we have to close down some of the largest parts of our economy for another month or even longer, then what happens next? Okay, there's only so much money that can be printed uh, and so many different kind of fiscal and monetary moves that the Fed and the Treasury can introduce uh, when there's a, a crisis, a financial crisis like this. So we have a lot to think about from an economic standpoint, but the, the argument that you're going to hear if you haven't heard already, is that about right now about 0.2% of the US population has been confirmed infected. About 0.01% of the population has passed away uh, due to COVID-19. And we're seeing a lot of that is concentrated towards the elderly and those with pre-existing health conditions. So the debate is going to go on of how to keep America healthy and wealthy, uh, which do eventually go hand in hand to keep the healthcare system running. If we're trying to do so much in a way to to protect that 0.01%, but perhaps create a slew of other issues for the other essentially 100%. That are dependent upon our economy. So you're going to hear those arguments that you know there's traffic fatalities every year. I just gave you the numbers. There's a lung cancer, and uh, you know almost half a million deaths annually related to cigarette smoking. There's drowning, especially among the youth. Um, you know alcohol-related diseases. All these things that you could say. All right, we could squash those numbers immediately and save a fortune for our healthcare system. Simply by having the government come in and say, no, you can't do that anymore. But that's, of course, ludicrous. These are normal things that we do in our daily lives, whether it be, uh, you know, driving, swimming, etc. So what's happening right now is we have a problem in a virus. And the intervention is not stop driving, slow down, stop smoking, stop drinking. It's social distancing. It's stay away from each other. And to stay away from each other obviously affects quite a bit of uh other aspects of our lives, so it, the debate will rage on. You know, I've just given you the economic insight that uh, it is a very dramatic impact. But on the flip side, others can point to the Spanish flu and say, you know, if that were to ever come about, um, not only is it almost like a genocide on a global level, but that e- economic impact is almost irrecoverable, or it would take a tremendous time um, to ever come back from something that that horrific okay so in closing there's only so long that a government can control a free people we are a capitalistic free society Uh, we're not communists so there's only going to be so long that you can tell everybody to not go into a park Um, but one of the things i found interesting in my research was in 1929 so about 10 years into prohibition After alcohol was outlawed, the mayor of Berlin, Gustav Boas, visited New York City and he walked away and asked the the mayor of New York City, James J. Walker, when prohibition would go into effect. The mere fact that he had to ask that question 10 years into prohibition shows you how people, individuals, will eventually react when they're constrained and forced with the reality that they then have to live their lives. And provide for their families. Again, that was a reaction we saw with people just wanting to go out and have a drink or serve a beer. Now we're talking about people and their ability to go to work and to you know move throughout their normal lives. So quite a bit to uh, chew on here, um, but as some states elect to reopen next month, we'll see if that was a smart move that's gonna help their economy, or was it a gamble that unfortunately may come all too soon. And only time will tell. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Coderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Coderna. And uh, keep on tuning in. This could be a good uh, preface to next week um, when we're going to have uh, a renowned financial expert, Jerry Detweiler, on the show uh, talking about everything governments have done um, from a financial standpoint for our small businesses. So keep tuning in and we'll see you next week. Thank you.
1: The Coderna podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors, or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Coderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Pass. 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey 07003. Securities, product services, and advisory services are offered through Pass, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. 973-244-4420. Financial representative the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Pass is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Caderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of PASS or Guardian. Caderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. Pass is a member of finra SIPC. California Insurance License Number OK 04194. Content of the Caderna Podcast is copyright of Brian M Caderna, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission from the Caderna Podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of, of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries, or affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries and such opinions are subject to change without notice.